This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest spoiler cast. This for episode 503 of Game of Thrones entitled High Sparrow. Lots and lots of feedback this week. I uh, just want to acknowledge everybody's uh, very kind words uh, for the podcast. And uh, I actually was surprised that the majority of the feedback seemed to favor me doing the podcast alone. Uh, I was kind of shocked by that, but some people said uh, just me being here sounds more conspiratorial. Uh, some people said it was a more intimate feel, whatever that means in a podcasting context. Uh, but no, I was that was a new new thought for me. So I um, also had some people volunteer or put forth uh, suggestions for co-hosts. So I appreciate all that. And again, thanks for all the kind words. Like I said, we got tons to talk about this week, so let's get right to it. First up, Carlos P., so if according to the original story, Mance is burned, but then seemingly glamoured, what if the same thing happened to Jon Snow when he's stabbed? I think that would make more sense, and here's why. If Jon is now, after his supposed death, ghost, well, that's pretty weak. So what? Is he now going to storm around as a dire wolf and win back the Seven Kingdoms as an animal? I mean, I like dire wolves, but that being Jon Snow's permanent shape seems underwhelming. I like the White Walker option and Jon being another cold hands, but the Double Ds seem to have done away with that storyline. If John does come back as a White Walker, can you speak to the Westeros mythology about the Ice Dragon? That creature has been sprinkled throughout the saga, and I really like the idea of the White Walker, Jon Snow, riding an Ice Dragon. That would make a literal ice and fire dragons tie to the original name of the saga, and it'd be pretty sweet to see two dragons made of two elements. Well, uh, I can't speak much of uh, to it because there's very little information about Ice Dragon as a real creature. It seems to be seen as a legendary and mythological species of dragon, which dragons at the time of Game of Thrones are already on the verge of becoming kind of mythological creatures until they come storming back into the world. So um, there's a lot of mention, I think three quotes in Dance of Dragons from Jon Snow's POV chapters where he's remembering tales of old Nan told of ice dragons uh, he's also comparing to being in the uh, the bowels of the wall as being in the belly of an ice dragon. And he's talking about the wind of the wall being as cold as an ice dragon's breath. Now, there's a couple things that complicate this. In 1980, George Martin wrote a children's novel called The Ice Dragon. So this could just be an homage to his past work. Also, if John... You know, the R plus L equals J theory is true, which, again, I think most of us assume is. Uh, John being at the wall would be a literal ice dragon uh, with him being a secret Targaryen. So 
I tend to think this is more a literary device than a literal new species of dragon. Uh, because the more we get into the books, the later we get, the more it seems unlikely that we're going to be getting a new type of fantastic creature um, that's going to be called forth from the wall or underneath the crypts of Winterfell or whatever. But, you know, it's your, it's your tinfoil if you want to wear that hat. I'm not going to hate on you. He also asks uh, for me to speak about the Horn of Joraman. He continues, that was also burned with mance, and if he was glamoured, then Horn is out there too, and that would also mean the destruction of the wall if it was found. But that hasn't been mentioned by the Double D, so I wonder if that is done away with too. The other thing about John being glamoured that I don't like is we get John's death from his POV. It would be really weird, you know, to like have the Rattleshirt chapter of him being burned to death uh, and burned alive thinking that he was Mance Raider. In fact, we know that wasn't true. So... That's another, you know, slight, slight bit of Valerian steel cutting through your tinfoil. But let's let's talk about the Horn of Joraman. So this is a legendary uh, horn that purports to be able to wake giants. And Wildling lore maintains it also has the power to destroy the wall when blown. Now, there's four possibilities that you can consider when you're talking about the whereabouts of this horn. One, Mance found the horn, and it was burned with him. Two, he found the horn, it was burned with him, but it survived intact and is later recovered from the smoking ruins uh, by some unknown party. The horn was a fake and just a bluff, and Mance never found a real horn, which is the opinion of Toramund. Uh, But on the other hand, he could be lying to do an elaborate cover-up, which brings us to four. The horn was real, but it was passed on to someone else, and a decoy was burned. Now, one big piece of evidence that the Horn of Joraman is kind of a red herring is that it has not been mentioned in uh, the the television series. So if there was some doomsday weapon that could destroy the wall, we better hear about it before the season is up, or else it's just going to be too, you know, the, the further... You know, it's like the opposite of a Chekhov's gun. Uh, the further into something you introduce a key to salvation, the more, the less it's a Chekhov's gun and the more it's a deus ex machina. So I, again, I, I, I discount that theory. But if we're just talking about book information, then I, some of this stuff does seem significant. But again, the double Ds haven't mentioned any of it. So maybe they got another, you know, way around it is that uh, one possibility is that John and Sam found the real horn in the cache of dragon glass that was buried at the fist of the first man, which, if that's the case, Sam is still in possession of the horn by the end of Dance because it went on his travel to the Citadel, and uh, as, as far as we know, he still has it. Now, I don't think the Horn of Joraman can actually destroy the wall. If it exists at all, I think it's more likely that it's a dragon horn, similar to the one that Euron found in his travels, which is able to control dragons with sorcery and magic. Uh, a personal tinfoil theory of mine that I haven't actually sat down and done the research to make real, but I think Victorian's whole plot, plot uh, excuse me, I think Victorian's whole plot point is to just give Danny a horn that will allow her to reliably control Drogon, since that seems to be the crux of the issue, that no one alive knows how the Targaryens were able to control their dragons. Well, it could be that there's some secret horn they have that uh, allows them to ensorcel them and control them. 
if that is if theory, there's one horn, it's possible that Sam has uh, another horn that will allow a resurrected John or someone else we consider a friendly force to control one of the other three dragons. And again, a personal pet tinfoil theory of mine is that Bran Stark will control the third dragon uh, through some sort of warging process. Uh, he will he will be a dragon rider in the sense that he directly controls the dragon and becomes the dragon essentially through his warging powers. So the other thing about the horn of Joramon being perhaps a dragon horn is that they mention even the decoy is much larger than any of the largest beasts that have horns in 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 uh, almost said Middle Earth in Westeros. Uh, but it is kind of consistent with the description of Euron's horn. So that, to me, sounds like it's more of a dragon horn than it is a mystical, giant-waking, wall-shattering horn. But I would love to hear theories against that. Moving on. Connor O.B. said, I was driving down the road listening to the last spoiler cast, and you were talking about Danny and the three heads of the dragon, and it hit me. What if Gurm doesn't have Danny ever take the Iron Throne? Granted, where we leave her with Drogon and the approaching Dothraki in the books, it's pointing in that direction, but what if her endgame is to reestablish the Targaryen Empire in Valeria? I haven't put much thought into this as of yet, and I can only assume it would have major consequences to the outcome of the struggle for the throne. I haven't read anything tinfoil or otherwise about this possibility on Reddit, so I wanted to know your thoughts. Uh, My thoughts are, I like this theory. It would leave Westeros for someone else to hold as part of an expanded Valerian freehold. Uh, But if I'm thinking out loud, I wonder if at the end of the series, the Iron Throne will be abolished in favor of some sort of Western flavor of democracy with a parliamentary system of commoners and noblemen or wise masters governing the people with a king or queen, uh, or maybe both, one for the West and one for the East, uh, being some sort of figurehead or perhaps military commander that serves to protect the people and the realm and to safeguard their freedom. Uh, kind of in the way the queen serves for the United Kingdom. You know, she's, I think, a, a, a most charitable reading of, and again, I'm an American. I'm talking about a form of government I don't really know. But I've read that the whole point of the queen is that she's like the last firebreak for tyranny against the government. That all That she has no real power except for the fact that all the military forces are uh, personally sworn to be loyal to her. So if she ever said, you know, if the, if, if the government ever became tyrannical, she could tell the armed forces to rise up and depose it and then form a new government. Uh, so I could see something like that. And I think that'd be interesting because that truly would be a dream of spring, something new, uh, something to end the cycle of the commoners being uh, just suffering at the hands and the whims of the people in power. And it would be a permanent change and, and a... Uh, a, a true sea change in the way this world works. And it'd be the first time for, you know, I mean, this is the way the world's were for thousands and thousands of years. I think that'd be pretty cool and pretty exciting. So, and it's also the kind of government that Danny's flirting with in her conquest of Slaver's Bay, setting up the councils uh, to rule in her absence. So I, I, I kind of like that idea. Moving on to San Fran homeless guy. It's an unfortunate username and, and, uh, I hope it's not literally true, Uh, but regardless, his email, my theory for the TV show, Brynn will lay down her life to allow Catelyn to rise again in her body. This will give us a Lady Stoneheart without Michelle Fairley with Brynn's strength and fighting skills, but Cat's hate and vengeance. All right. 
San Fran homeless guy. This is a tough one for me because what is Cat arising from? What we have to work with in this series, and correct me if I'm leaving one out, but you've got White, you've got Warging, and you've got the Lord of Light. These are the ways that people can experience life after death, right? So we know that with some sort of uh, other-based ice magic, they can create some kind of zombie uh, servants. I almost said mindless, but then I recalled that I think it's somewhat significant that the Black Brothers that were whited early on in the series knew where the Lord Commander's uh, apartment was, his personal quarters were. So it's not like they're entirely mindless or they don't have any memories, but it's kind of like season one Walking Dead zombies. There's flickers of life and flickers of memory, but you know that person is gone, right? We also know that the Lords uh, or the Lord of Light can, within reason, acting through his priests and priestesses, raise a dead body back to some version of life. Now, granted, the longer a person has been dead or the more times they endure the process, the more that that person, uh, who that person was before, is gradually lost and also the grotier their body is. But that seems to be how that works. And then we also have a singular instance of a white with personality and self-direction. That's cold hands, which is an enigma that has created sheets upon sheets and roll after roll of tinfoil on the internet. I've heard a lot of theories suggesting that Cold Hands is Benjamin Stark, either body and soul, or that he warged into a potentially ancient white that he encountered uh, with a near-death experience north of the wall. And what the hell? He's a Stark. I can believe it. That's kind of their ancestral power, though I don't subscribe to that theory personally. Another theory I've heard is that Cold Hands is just a puppet that's being manipulated by the Three-Eyed Crow. The Three-Eyed Crow needs someone to go down and uh, escort Bran to his person. He can't do it himself because he's fused to a tree, so he grabs a white... Uh, someone that Bran would perhaps trust, someone that's cloaked like a black brother, and he essentially mind controls that empty vessel that's walking and shambling around uh, down to escort Bran back. I like that theory a lot better. I think it has less problems than the whole Binge and Stark thing. Now, uh, here, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, we're entering into a kind of Harry Potter or Horcrux territory is what I feel like you're suggesting where there's some kind of disembodied spirit of Cat that Brienne could commune with or combine with. Because I think if Cat's body is around at this point in the series, uh, and it hasn't been Lady Stonehearted by the brothers off-screen and introduced later, which is a point, which which could happen, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a bit. But if they do that, her body, if, they, if, if absent of that, kind of us not being privy to kind of switcheroo thing, her body is really, really old and seemingly past the expiration date. I don't know how many days, weeks, months it's been since the Red Wedding in this universe, but it's been a minute. It's been a minute. So I think it's too late to introduce a wrinkle like that. It's for, far more likely that any magic from this point forward will be combinations or reworkings of things that we've already been introduced to, and you're not going to have disembodied spirits or horcruxes or something like that. Janine S. said, what's Littlefinger's long con here? I recall reading in an interview somewhere with Sophie Turner that she liked filming the violent scenes, and there is a very violent and uncomfortable scene this season. Not another rape scene. Somehow, Ramsay doing evil things to Sansa is going to push some fans uh, new to the series right over the edge, I think. Not saying it shouldn't be part of the story, because a kinder, gentler Ramsay would be boring, 
but it will still be very uncomfortable to watch. Oh, brother. Uh, I had someone else suggest that, uh, wonder if HBO can get away with the fluffing. Let's call it the fluffing, the preparation uh, that Theon has to do to fake Arya uh, before Ramsay gets it up in the books. Uh, which I kind of recall that being hinted and alluded to, and then Theon either has a psychic break during it or the chapter ends there. And and please don't email me and say I'm a monster because I'm not advocating for this. I'm just talking about in terms of it being interesting and what they can pull off on television. Um I think you could allude to that fact and then in, you know, in scene as it's about to happen with Theon and Sansa and Ramsay and not have it actually happen. And you'd get all of the kind of horror and disgust that we're supposed to feel as viewers. And again, it's not like I like this. Uh, I felt plenty of horror and disgust when I saw children murder other children in The Wire, but that was compelling as hell television. And you know, it made me feel a certain way that the authors wanted me to feel so that I could appreciate the story they're trying to tell. So again, I'm not saying I want to see this. I'm saying that that would be interesting and it would certainly make whatever Sansa does as a result or whatever happens after this and this Winterfellian clusterfuck I think we're into in for uh, really resonate potentially. Or they could just be like, no, no, that's just way too extreme and not go there. But they haven't really pulled much in the way of punches when it comes to Game of Thrones. We've seen uh, not exactly on screen, but you've had soldiers with a baby uh, and then it cuts away. And I think you see the shadow of them killing. We've seen murder of infants. We've seen children pushed out of windows. We've seen a 14 year old seduced by a 20 year old. We, I, you know, there's not very many taboos this show won't go for. We've seen a man castrated on, 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 you know, on screen, on camera. So I don't think it would be like that's beyond the pale for HBO to go down. Uh, but we'll have to see. It will be uncomfortable to watch. I think we can all agree. Uh, Matt S. from New York City. Uh, you mentioned an instant cast, Ramsey's Torture Horrors. My first thought upon seeing that extended shot on those girls was they're the Spearwives. I guess my theory has quickly disproved that those are the same actresses that tortured Theon. But with the amount that the whole Winterfell story seems to have changed, do you think that those girls could play a role similar to the Spearwives down the line? I kind of personally doubt it, Matt. Although, again, kind of thinking out loud here, one way to interpret her look is that she would do anything to cut Sansa out of her life because she likes Ramsay the way he is, and she doesn't want him settling down and getting married or doing any of that stuff, anything to potentially threaten her personal authority. Now, that seems like it's bad news for Sansa, but it could be a good thing because perhaps her and her sister whores, torture whores, whatever, her fellow women that play with Ramsay could conspire against him with Theon to help get Sansa out of Winterfell in a similar way to the Spearwives in the in uh, behave in the books with Mance. Uh, motivations are different, characters are different, but in the result is they're coming together to try to help this thing out uh, to serve their own interests. Then you have Brienne that could either work with them or serve as a complication to the plot. And again, it looks like Winterfell is shaping up to be this master clusterfuck, or this massive clusterfuck, rather, 
which is kind of perfect from a book reader standpoint. And I'm really looking forward to seeing all these plots on a, on a potential collision course and how it, it's going to work out. Moving on, Hef says, I just listened to the spoiler cast from episode two of the season. I find I have to disagree with you on something. While I do agree with, with the or that the Ironborn will likely be reintroduced around the midseason, I disagree with the viewpoint that they might not have anything to really contribute to the story. I think the Victorian's plot seems to be extremely important, though I'm not entirely sure where, where it will lead. There are a few specific elements of this story which seem crucial. Victorian's Iron Fleet arriving to Slaver's Bay would give Daenerys something to properly counter the fleet from Korth, which is blockading Marine. In terms of the likely coming battle for Marine, restoring the city's access to the port would go far in terms of aiding the defenders. Counterpoint, in the show, they made a point to show that Danny now has a fleet of like 100 ships that uh, Dario captured for her. So, sure, this seems to be Victorian's role in the books, and... Also, perhaps to serve a larger prophecy with Danny regarding her having three husbands. And yeah, the Dragonhorn bit I just talked about, too. <laughs> uh, but it's not necessary to the show. And that's the thing. I'm not sure your email is pointing. With, I wasn't saying that they have no point in the books. Just that I don't think they're necessary for achieving the similar goals in a different way in the television show. His next point, the Ironborn do not sink ships when they can capture them, assuming Danny returns to Marine, likely with an additional Dothraki army, wins the Battle of Slaver's Bay and eventually decides to cross over to Westeros. Having extra ships and experienced men to sail them and care for them would be extremely important, which is a fair point, but I feel like in the show, you're watching, nobody's going to question where, that these hundred ships need a hundred captains and hundreds of experienced crew members, right? People are just going to assume that these were captured too, or more likely the crew will be former slaves who were forced to crew these ships and have the sailing skills necessary, and they won't really need a captain as much as they need a commander, which surely, to hell, Danny can find within the ranks of the Second Sons and the Unsullied and, and so forth. Uh, his final point, Victorian's wounded hand appeared burnt after the Red Priest Morocco treated him, seems significant in some way. I'm personally torn about the entire R'hllor concept. To me, Thoris of Myrrh's faith seems true, and the god's response to him seems generally benevolent in nature. This is opposed with nearly everything that Morocco or Melisandre do in the name of the Lord of Light. When Morocco heals Victorian's wounds, the book describes something like inhuman screams and laughing coming from the chap... Excuse me. From the captain's chambers, and when Victorian emerges, he immediately discards the drowned god for the Lord of Light. I think this is relevant. Jeez, I think this is relevant, as if the followers of Relor are actually evil. Now, Danny would have a potential danger in her midst, who she may need, but might not consider a threat. Again, a fair point, but again, this is a book kind of thing, uh, and not necessarily for the show to succeed telling what they consider to be the main plot, and. I'm really sorry for the Ironborn among us, but I just think you're going to go the route of Walt from Lost. Keep in mind, I checked out on Lost early, so if they brought him back in some later seasons, I'm using this in the, hey, this guy is super significant to the plot, the series might hinge upon his fate, LOL, JK sense of the analogy, not in the, oh, in season six or seven, he actually came back and saved the day, because I don't know, I stopped, I stopped watching. But I do think... You guys are going to get walted there. Um, and, you know, I I have no love for the Ironborn, so I, I don't really have a dog in this fight. In fact, I got an anti-dog in this fight. I got a dog that kind of doesn't want to see 
Euron with his crazy eye and Victorian with his crazy hand and et cetera, et cetera. Jordan S. So I'm listening to the feedback of the House of Black and White episode, and you guys are wondering about the fate of Serio Pharrell. What if there never was a Serio and he's actually Jackin? We first meet Jackin locked in a cage coming from King's Landing, and he calls out to Arya. What if Serio was captured, face changed, became Jackin, or as we all uh, now know, no one? I would say it's a long shot, but you never know with Gurm. I'm actually a big fan of the Serio Pharrell equals Jackin theory, and that. Arya has factored into the Faceless Man's plans for a long, long time. I think I touched on this with the Jack and Sorella Citadel tinfoil theory uh, last season. And I'll probably say this every episode, but in the show notes of this podcast, if you go, there is a link embedded to the tinfoil archive. So you can go back and see everything from last year and the topic and the time stamp that you need to fast forward to to get there. Um, but if not, I definitely... Uh, think a Jackin identity tinfoil roundup is in order because there are people that paint him all over the place. He's kind of like one of those Benjin, Cold Hands, Dario types that uh, if there is a third or a minor third tier character, then it could be suspected that he is Jackin or he could be Benjin or he could be Dario or maybe all of them or Euron. Euron's in that category too. Uh, Clinton H., now that Arya is deep within the House of Black and White, will we see more of Nymeria and Arya warging into the Riverlands and maybe kill a few Freys? My first thought is that I kind of doubt it, but assuming there's some sort of Frey pie situation and what with the North remembering in this episode and all that and how quickly they're burning through Arya's plot, maybe a few Wolf Dream sequences aren't out of place. I mean... It's still early, and maybe they'll introduce this, but I, I kind of, I kind of thought that in the books that they began her training by blinding her. Maybe I'm misremembering that, and that comes later. But I was kind of surprised that they skipped ahead of that. And if they get rid of the whole blinding plot, uh, then they have all kinds of room to fit in some of these warging dreams in the Riverlands. Uh, and I want to say that in the series, uh, we've we've seen that John has ghost dreams, but this is the point where I start getting really hazy about what happened in the books versus what happened in the shows. Uh, I think it also was hinted when Rob attacked the Lannister camp in season two, uh, the whispering woods campaign, essentially that the gray wind point of view was intended to suggest that that was being experienced through Rob's eyes. The way it was shot, uh, was shot very similar to all the other wolf POV scenes. And in fact, I can't think of another animal POV that didn't involve a warg in the show. So that happened. And I think maybe Arya had one too last season or the season before that. But I know it happens all the time in the books. Again, I'm, I'm just kind of fuzzy. Uh, certainly in the books, all the Stark children, all down to Rickon, except for Sansa, had some sort of warg dreams. And it's probably likely that Sansa only didn't because Lady got killed very early in the series. Uh, but again, I keep getting confused and I spend about 15 minutes of Googling and that wasn't enough to confirm or deny the theory. So if anyone there, how, and if there is anyone out there that has a better handle on it, uh, email me game of Thrones at bald and we'll talk about it. Michael C. I know you already did a Howlin' Reed as the high sparrow tinfoil cast, but when they mentioned Leanna Mormont last week, it got me thinking about Maggie Mormont and Lord Glover who Rob sent to Greywater watch. I came across a great post on one of the forums that is basically explained how the Mormont ladies are the septas that guard Cersei once she is imprisoned 
at how Lord Glover was a shirtless sparrow with a seven-pointed star carved on his chest. He says, parenthetically, sorry not to provide a link, uh, but it gave me uh, or gave more fuel to the Howland Reed equals high sparrow theory, so I'll continue to look for these subtle hints in the weeks to come. So I didn't have the link, but I did look, and I did find a couple posts on Reddit and some on, uh, I think it was westeros.org, or maybe it's a wiki of, of uh, ice and fire. Uh, where they're talking about this, and the only evidence that I could find out was that Septa Anella's description, and this is the one one of the Cersei's captors, she's described as broad-faced, homely woman with big bones and massively calloused hands. And that's roughly what you'd expect from a description of Maggie Mormont, you know? A uh, woman from Bear Island. Uh, and that Maggie is conspicuously absent in the march to Winterfell, and her location at the moment is unknown. But, on the other hand, that's essentially the same evidence that we're hanging the High Sparrow theory on. So what the hell? I love this theory. And remember, this and the High Sparrow theory is kind of bleeding-edge stuff here. This is stuff that's introduced in the last book. And if we keep in mind George Martin's preferred three-step reveal, and, and if you haven't seen that, he said in interviews that he likes to weave stuff where... The first reveal is very subtle, very light, and he doesn't expect like one out of a hundred book readers to pick up. The second reveal is a little bit extra information that then the above average book reader, uh, maybe 40% of people are going to be able to pick up on. And the third step reveal is for the dum-dums to knock on the head and be like, yo, Jon Snow is a hidden Targaryen, which we actually haven't got the third step of that reveal. Uh, I feel like we've got the first two. And he bemoans the fact that the internet... Uh, and this podcast is part of this problem, is making that three-step thing ridiculous because, you know, a million people read it, the hive mind gets together and discuss it, and suddenly your carefully crafted, woven secrets and hints are laid bare and exposed for all to see. Um, but anyway, this could be the first step of the three-step process, but I also realize that's the same as saying it also could be a red herring. So who knows, But but I like it so far. Uh, Michael continues, do you think that Davos is getting extra screen time because he'll be visiting the Manderleys by the second half of the season? There's far too much awesomeness in White Harbor to uh, cut it out of this season. And at this pace, it's hard to see how they'd save it until next season. Maybe they'll have Davos share a ship with Eamon, Eamon, uh, Gilly, and Sam. I think they're hinting strong at this. The North remembers. Did you catch the name of the Lord and Lady that Ramsay flayed? I'm pretty sure that he said it was Lord Kalen. Uh, presumably the Lord of Moat Kalen, which is not correct from the book perspective, because I think Moat Kalen is one of Howland Reed's holdings. Uh, and I don't know that there would be a lesser Lord uh, set over it, honestly. What I think Davis is going to do is set off on a mission to get Rickon, much like the books, as Stannis still needs a Stark to solidify the North. John has refused. He doesn't know about Sansa, I'm pretty sure at this point. Uh, but I'm assuming they'll bring back the great John Umber, who has been missing in action since season one. But it was a fairly memorable character that the audience would recognize with a five-second previously on. I mean, they could just show the whole, uh, my lord's meat is tough scene, and everybody like, oh, yeah, that guy. And they did make a point of Bran saying, take him to the Umbers, uh, to Asha, last season. So we know where Rickon's going. We know there is an already introduced lord that is the master of that keep. I don't know. I'm trying to think. 
how Davos would be sent on that mission. Maybe maybe it's as simple as the Great John is the one that kind of uh, uh, it takes the place of the Manderly, that he's going to go treat with him, and it could play out exactly the same, except for you know having a lord too fat to sit a horse, uh, which I'll miss seeing, to be honest. You have the Great John, and he's entertaining free. It could go down exactly the same, except for, again, law of economy of characters. We already got this guy introduced. We wouldn't have to introduce a whole other plot line and why the Manderleys are so loyal to the Starks and the fact that they were, you know, driven from the South and the Starks showed them mercy and gave them lands and all that stuff. Like it's baked in with the whole great John thing. So I think you might get a little bit of a switcheroo there. I want to say switcheroo a lot this, this episode, I think. So it's, it's essentially the simplified version of the grand Northern conspiracy, right? Um, the fewer moving parts, the better Charlotte from New Zealand, Speaking of Middle-earth, said, I was reading the Reddit board this week after, after this week's episode and saw some members commenting that they think Sansa will kill Ramsay Bolton and then Littlefinger will unite the Eerie with the North through a marriage with Sansa. The implication being that he marries Sansa as a replacement for Cat. Ew. My theory, and it might have already been put forward by others, is this. Given the Double Ds have said things that will happen in different orders from the books, after finding her ev- inner evil and knocking off the Boltons... She either returns to the Eerie or Harry the Heir comes to her. This would allow the plot to be streamlined with the removal of Jean Poole's story, but without the ultimate end to be reached. With this theory, I'm not sure how the Jean Theon escape to the north or Stannis fits with this. Perhaps Sansa doesn't reach Stannis, but she and Littlefinger go south, or perhaps Stannis attacking Winterfell plot is sped up considerably. All I can say is that, again, it feels very late in the game to introduce new characters like Harry the Heir, if a simpler alternative can be thought of. Kind of like a Occam's Razor version for Game of Thrones, which I think I now will refer to as Martin's Razor. <laughs> uh, so I think the Reddit theory of Littlefinger marrying Sansa, I think, you know, again, we all agree it's fucked up and it's gross, but it's also heavily foreshadowed, and I think it's more likely. Um and again, you know, I think we've talked enough about the cluster fuck of Winterfell to see how that all fits in there. But I, yeah, I just, the whole area, the hair, Harry, the air, that's a tough, that's like a rural juror type of thing to pronounce. I just don't see it. Samuel, I'm wondering if that red woman prostitute who Tyrion saw was Tysha. After all, Tywin said that she uh, was wherever whores go and Tyrion is where whores go. Tyrion makes eye contact with her and it was like they knew each other. This could also explain him not sleeping with the other prostitute. Do you really think the show is going to bring Taisha back into this? Uh, I'm going to imply Martin's razor right away and say I seriously doubt it. The complete lack of wherever horrors go and the fundamental change of Tyrion's feelings and motivations for killing Shay and Tywin from the books, and how they've kind of downplayed all that, hint that Taisha is getting the razor treatment. And I'm just as clueless as anyone to figure out what the look between the two meant. Um... I started on a little bit of tinfoil research uh, earlier the, today, seeing if I could connect her to the mysterious Quaith character uh, that we met in Karth, uh, or Karth, rather, uh, that we haven't seen since season two and who appeared always masked, so it wouldn't be the big, what the fuck, this girl's now uh, an Asian lady. Uh, but I guess I, f- I didn't get very far. Uh, I couldn't make any of those connections, and honestly, I didn't have enough time to continue doing that research. It might be something I, because it's kind of appealing. Like it'd be, I'd be so stoked if I could come up with one or two kind of unique pieces of tinfoil that I could actually build up and maybe get some heat on Reddit 
or westeros.org or something that would be uh pretty flattering from my ego standpoint um but may- maybe i can noodle on that a little bit later uh i guess i'll feel like a genius though if she does show up in danny's court later and advises her to take Tyrion in her council before she pff, vanishes in in a puff of smoke ninja style again but uh we'll just have to see hunter w I finished reading A Song of Ice and Fire last year after Game of Thrones Season 4, so of course I went back to listen to all the spoiler sections, including the tinfoil theories. My buddy, who is an adventurous show watcher only, really hyped these theories up, especially the Howland Reed is the High Septon theory. I was entertained by them all, and I think that's the point, but now I'm being a snobby, judgmental asshole. At least you're laying all your cards on the table, and I appreciate you being a stand-up guy, Hunter. After this week's episode, I went back and listened to the Howland Reed equals High Septon theory and even reviewed it on Reddit, and on second glance, I find it lacking. Not just in circumstantial evidence, which is mostly appearance descriptions, possibly being the same High Septon Brienne met on the road, and a fun motive that was basically made up due to, one, his location, and two, everyone wants to see Cersei fall, and three, the North remembers is the coolest thing that can possibly happen in this story. While this is all entertaining and fun to speculate, I reserve my right to call some weak shit on this. Not weak in entertainment value, or even as a story point. I think you can argue that this is the smartest political move Howland Reed could possibly make. But he is also a curmudgeon that lives in a land of mud, so it's not like he's got all the political cunning of a Littlefinger or Varys. All that being said, I'd like to declare this weak shit from the viewpoint of a pissed-off Ned Stark's ghost. Damn it, I already said we weren't doing disembodied spirits or horcruxes, so I should just disallow this whole shitting on the tinfoil on that basis alone. But we will continue. Let's break it down, and again, this is from an aggrieved ghost of Ned Stark. So my best friend who saved me, a badass Lord of the North, in the craziest battle of my life, and possibly wildest if you assume the R plus L equals J is true, which we will for this theory, who my heir requested help from after, one, I was wrongly beheaded by a bastard king, and two, before my heir and my wife were both backstabbed, murdered, whose house is supposedly super chill with the children of the forest, who are all magical and have infinite ammo cheat codes engaged for their fireballs, is faking being a poor religious dude who is starting a cult of other poor people to slut-shame Cersei in the capital? How does this help me, the ghost of Lord Eddard Stark? If R plus L equals J is all true, and my nephew has that strong of a claim on the throne, and my son Bran and your son Jojen can fucking see the past and future through trees, which are our gods... You decide to leave your house for the first time in forever, travel to King's Landing, start a cult worshipping some false-ass gods? What the hell, Howland? Get your shit together, go into Tower of Joy beast mode, and avenge me, damn it! Like, what the hell is the endgame anyway? Let's assume we do get Jon Stark on his way to the throne. How exactly do you explain to all your sparrows that we are going to fight the crown to support a used-to-be bastard who is the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, that is really old Targaryen royalty, but worships the old gods and probably got revived by a demon magic of the Red God, all the time chilling in the neck by herself, and that's all you got for me? (laughs) Uh, You know, all of these are excellent points, and it's an especially foolhardy plan if you're the last person alive who can affirm that Jon is actually the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, right? Uh, My only response is to just say, again... We're at the first step of a potential three-step germ reveal, and we have no idea what his plans are. Uh, Speaking of Howland Reed, not George, although same applies. What his thinking process is, uh, what contingencies he planned for, etc. 
It could be that step one is to just destroy what's left of the Lannister, Lannister regime, and he has a plan to sweep the sparrows and the faith militant out of the way when he has to, some sort of Order 66-type situation to send them out of King's Landing and against a target like the Tyrells in Highgarden or the Lannisters, uh, what's left of them at Castleary Rock. But shit, we don't even know what the aftermath of the Walk of Shame is. Uh, since Kevin uh, gets got in the books... Uh, so again, I appreciate you pumping the brakes on this, but I'm still going to keep repping the Howl and Reed as High Septon Theory until we get another book or more episodes later this season that seems to actively disprove it because it's super fun and super cool. So there. <laughs> Thank you, Hunter. Moving on to James P. In a recent interview, Germ stated that he has just come up with an interesting twist for a character who was not in play, and he outlined the series and conclusions uh, or when he outlined the series and conclusions for the double D's. He seemed almost giddy about the fact that he had added something that could not be included in the show. As a reader from back when the first book was originally released, this is the realization of my greatest fear, that the television show will start to affect the story George is writing for the books. After all, his original intent is writing the series uh, in writing the series was to produce something that could never be adapted to television or movies due to plot complexity and number of characters. He has previously stated that this series came about as a result of all the rejected television projects he had tried to get going. As a reader, I find this a horrifying prospect. He will complete the book series with an eye towards making it different from the TV show. So characters who we are assuming are not important because they are not included in the television show may suddenly become much more prominent in the books because George wants it to be vastly different and stand on its own. As book readers, we are not going to get the story we would have gotten without the television show. It's kind of sad when you consider that the author's most prominent life's work will end up being subverted by a TV show based on it. I'm sure the money made it is worth his while, but I can't help but wonder, if he was bound to the truth and given a second chance, would he allow his life's work to be put out by someone else and someone else's vision first, or would he decide to finish the series and then let them adapt? Man, that is a hard question to answer, because I'm not George Martin, uh... And I don't know kind of what makes him tick as a person. It seems to me that he was super confident six or seven years ago when he inked this contract that, of course, I can bang out two more books because I've got the Miranese not unraveled. And I just got I, I know what's going on in my head. All I got to do is get it on the paper. And then the book, you know, the San Diego Comic Cons happened and the writing the television series and the world of ice and fire and the lands of ice and fire and dangerous women and all these other anthologies he's editing. And the man just can't say no. Plus he's got a million other things he's doing. He's running a theater, uh, in his hometown of Santa Fe. And I just think it got away from him. He, he spent so much time kind of in a victory lap mode that by the time he settled down and, and buckled down to start writing, which I believe was like as little ago as a last year, when he really got serious about a winds of winter, he started panicking. And you can kind of see him in the interviews chronologically going through the five steps of grief. He's kind of angry and defiant. Uh, he was in denial. Uh, he's kind of sulky about it. And now it seems like he's in acceptance mode. Uh, maybe this is another kind of bargain. You know, he did the bargaining. Well, maybe we'll do a movie or maybe we'll do a prequel or, and I just don't know. And I don't know how he feels about it. And I've been through this with other books and, and other canon series. Like, you know, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd and have been since I was a little boy. 
And I got super into all the third level sources, all the, um, I forget what they call the, 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 uh, everything that happens after return of the Jedi, essentially. And, you know, now all that stuff that, you know, they've always said in interviews like, Oh yeah, that's, that's Canon. The only one that can really override it is George. Well, now George assigned the whole thing over to J.J. Abrams, who is some asshole who's just going to come and throw all that out. And again, I like J.J. Abrams, but for this purpose, he's an asshole. He's just going to throw all this out and do whatever the hell he wants to the story, um, ignoring literally 20 years of stuff that I've invested my life into. That sucks. And I, I feel like I'm the only person on the p- fucking planet Earth that's kind of skeptical about this whole Star Wars series. Um, but... That's neither here nor there. We'll find out about that in about eight months. I'm just saying that this shit happens, and I don't know what George's first duty, what he feels his first duty is. Is his first duty to make sure that the story he's told is told? Um, or can he take things? Like I think one of the things I've seen him is he's really impressed by the actress who played Asha. And she, he really sat up and took notice of her, and he he had some ideas of what she could do in the books beyond that stuff doesn't bother me. Okay. Um, you know, seeing, I mean that Elmore Leonard did that with Raylan Givens and justified. Uh, he gave his, his blessing to make a series based on this character. He watched, he's like, God damn, this is cool. I'm going to go back and write a book about Raylan and Boyd, even though I've killed Boyd in a previous book from the perspective of this in the series. That's fine. And having a tertiary character have a larger part is fine. I think we're all going to be pissed if John sits the Iron Throne in the series, in the television series, and Danny sits the Iron Throne in the books, because then, like, you'll always have this debate of what really happened. And, you know, I'm an internet nerd, you're an internet nerd, that's stuff we care about. I don't know if George cares about it. I don't know whether he'd think that's an abomination. And quite frankly, I am fascinated in like a sociological experiment sense of the word to see how all this plays out in the next five years. Because then you've got the other thing that nobody, I mean, everybody has kind of talked about it and then it's kind of seen as gauche now. Like what if he just up and dies tomorrow? You know, are we going to get a Robin, uh, Robert Jordan type situation where they bring in a hired gun to finish it? Uh, will it become the property of HBO and, and they'll have the double D's flesh it out? Will it ever be finished? I don't know. I don't know. But it is fascinating to think about. Moving on to Caroline from New Orleans. Did you notice anything interesting about the opening shots of this episode in the House of Black and White? The first shot is a woman made of stone, then a lion made of stone, then a heart. Then at the end of the episode, stone men are discussed by Tyrion. I just felt like stone was all throughout this episode. Could this possibly be a hint to the book readers that we will in fact be getting Lady Stoneheart? Might be just wishful thinking, but I refuse to believe that they'll be leaving her out because they're already leaving out so much. Well, Carolyn, I would suggest that you get hyped at your own peril because, like you, I was first in disbelief over this Lady Stoneheart situation. But the more they deny it, uh, the more it seems that just they just aren't bringing her back. I think the Stone Men are being set up so they can jump... Uh, Jorah and Tyrion give us a nice little five-minute action scene on the road to Marine, possibly set up a cliffhanger with Tyrion falling into the water, and we're like, oh, is he going to get grayscale? This is, you know, what, what's going to happen? Jorah can get grayscale, now to give him even more pathos. Um, so that stuff seems good and seems like a reason enough to, uh, to, to, to bring it up. Now, I am getting increasingly hype for the possibility of Sansa being a living Lady Stoneheart. 
or even Brienne taking over that role after failing time and time again to find some kind of cause she believes in. I think we should be looking for clues going forward that Jamie and Brienne still have relevance in terms of not only independent characters, but also as connected characters. Because let's face it, if Jamie dies in Dorne or Brienne dies in some assault in Winterfell, do we really give a shit about Lady Stoneheart? I mean, honestly. I just speak for myself when I say the only reason I care about Lady Stoneheart at all is the conflict it introduces for Brienne and Jamie. Because otherwise, she's just a story engine to insert drama into two characters that I really like and enjoy seeing a bond develop between them. You know, she's just a creepy zombie subverting the mission of the Brotherhood, essentially. I get it. She's part of the Grand Northern Conspiracy and all that. But for my money, you could sever the Lady Stoneheart part and put Brienne in there or whatever and have the Grand Northern Conspiracy chug along just fine, especially on the show. Uh, Marin Ann Melvick from Norway writes, I just wanted to throw in my thoughts about the future relationship between Cersei and the mysterious High Sparrow. It seems that both Jim as well as many of your listeners, judging by the feedback, think that Cersei will somehow enter into some kind of beneficial to her agreement with the Sparrows. As book readers, we know, or at least have good reason to suspect this is not the case. The High Sparrow has no intention of becoming Cersei's ally. Why, then, did he concede that the treatment of the High Septons may have gone a little overboard? Here's what I think. I'm subscribed to the Howland Reed being the High Sparrow theory, and if he is indeed in King's Landing to avenge his good friend Ned, wouldn't this line about should have been more careful with the blade be a perfect reference to the court's treatment of Ned? Bad enough having him publicly confess to being a traitor, but having his head cut off was indeed going too far. If this is the High Sparrow's way of telling Cersei she will receive the same amount of mercy that her family managed to bestow upon Lord Stark, or rather is this... Yes, yes, hell yes, Hunter. You tried to cancel our Howlin' Sparrow party, but it's back on, baby. That is some quality tinfoil right there. Uh, and it's just the kind of shot of in the arm that we needed. So essentially, she's making a point that confessing to being a traitor, the humiliation should have been enough. You didn't need to cut his head off, giving him the blade. It's a little bit between the lines, and we got to keep a close eye on this going forward. But I like I like where your head's at, and I appreciate that, Marin. Read B, I had a thought that I wanted to share with you and maybe get your opinion on. Regarding the letter Littlefinger gets from Cersei, what if Cersei is asking Peter to take the uh, overbook Jamie's role and clean up the Riverlands? I'm guessing he won't be leading an army, so maybe his will be a solely diplomatic mission. This would get him out of Winterfell, leaving Sansa alone, which might spur her to a more rash action than she'd take if he was there. Maybe she's seen the movie Gone Girl, he suggests. But... By the way, the show won't still have Reek being the wedding night fluffer, will it? Can it go that far? Already discussed that little disgusting detail. He continues, Littlefinger parlaying through the hmm, Littlefinger parlaying through the Riverlands could be juicy, given his history at River Run and his relationships with the Freys and the remaining Tullys, plus his own personal agenda. And what if he met Lady Stoneheart and not Brienne? I don't know if that would actually happen, but it would be an interesting thing to do to that character given his love and affection for Kat. Uh, yeah, that's actually all plausible. And I think it'd be hilarious, too, to have Littlefinger going about on a mission to bring the Riverlands back to the king's peace. All the while, we see him just furthering his own goals and ambitions against the Lannisters. You know, in the books, right? I guess rather the television show... Cersei is a lot more deep and a more three-dimensional character and not quite just the caricature she is in the books. 
And it seemed, but it seems like she's making the same basic missteps and short-sighted thinking. She just comes off better in the show because we don't get to see her self-congratulatory and in, delusional inner monologues. So adding this additional layer of her using Littlefinger to her own ends and having a blow up in her face would be, for me, highly enjoyable. Uh, Reed continues, I also want to mention that I like your Valkyrie analogy for book plot lines that disappear. I did want to say, though, that I think Gurm goes down some of these rabbit holes, especially with the Dornish and the Ironborn characters and the stories from Feast, to show how each of the major houses respond to these world events and has their own ambitions. To me, it seems like Gurm just likes to pull and pull at strings to see where they end up, and sometimes they don't have to go very far, or they don't work out at all. He's established characters and let them act and react as they should, and some end up failing, and some get themselves killed. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, Martin said he's a gardener, not an architect. So a lot of this, you know, we we get a lot of this richness and historical narrative sense baked in that process. And and I enjoy it as well. Um, moving on to John N. Says, I have a tinfoilish theory for the High Sparrow that has to do with Cersei's letter to Littlefinger, which demands an immediate reply. All right. I've read all five books and I've been keeping up the show, of course, on my podcast now conspiring. A few other fans and I propose this theory and we want to know what you make of it. I think the letter is a plan to get Marcella into an arranged marriage with Sweet Robin of the Vale. The more I think about it, the more I realize that Cersei has no idea what Littlefinger has really been up to. And as Lord of the Vale, Robin is really the only thing that could she could seem to want from him. And with Marcella trapped in Dorne, Cersei may think this is an excellent ploy to negotiate her way from the Martells in case Jaime fails, which I expect to happen. In fact, I could easily see this being reverse on the books where Jaime ends up getting bailed out by Cersei in a streamlined plot we haven't even seen yet. So, uh, John in of the House Now Conspiring, I like this. I like it a lot. It'd be consistent with Cersei setting aside deals she's made with others, like we just saw with Bronn. Uh, the questions are exactly how this helps get Marcella out of Dorne and how could this possibly get Jamie out? And maybe you can send me an email, uh, this coming week to elaborate on this. Cause my thought is Prince Dorne, he gets a Raven that says, Hey buddy, our marriage alliance is over. I'm marrying her to the Erie now. Please return her. And Oh, by the way, my brother, you in prison for trying to kidnap her. Please. Thanks. You think he'd really be like, Oh, well, them's the breaks and hand her over. Like it's a good start on a theory. Maybe you guys can noodle on it and uh, develop a little bit further, kind of like my Quaith equals, uh, who did I make Quaith? Equals the Red Priestess of Volantis theory. So I couldn't even keep my own tinfoil straight. Okay, this brings us to our tinfoil segment this week, which is tinfoil theories on Melisandre, particularly the S plus B equals M theory, which several people have alerted me. I'd never heard of this before. This seems like it is a... December 2014 era theory. So it's pretty, pretty, pretty new tinfoil, newly minted tinfoil. And it, it essentially states that Melisandre is the bastard daughter of Sierra Seastar and Brendan Bloodraven Winters. Now you'll recall the Bloodraven figuring prominently in a lot of tinfoil we've talked about. And you'll also recall he's all but confirmed to be the real identity of the three eyed crow, that's currently welded to a tree and training Bran Stark in the greater art of green seeing. Uh, you also might recall that Blood Raven was one of the great bastards of King Aegon IV, the Unworthy, who was legitimized right after his father's death, which we covered all the Blackfire Rebellion last week. That's a lot of recalling, um, but that's that's kind of the base we're going to put this foundation on. Now, Sierra, you probably don't know. 
She and her mother figured in some side evidence on the Roose Bolton is a vampire, uh, tin <laughs> undead tin, uh, vampire tinfoil theory we considered last year. Uh, Sierra is also the bastard daughter of Aegon the Unworthy, and her brother, half-brother rather, Bloodraven, happened to be madly in love with her. Now, I'm going to talk about all the sources to support this, but first I wanted to discuss some odd things about Melisandre. Aside from the fact that, uh, you know, she can pop out shadow babies and she can burn leeches and kill kings. And also, um, this, there is a, a, a minor theory, an older theory about Melisandre being undead or being far older than she is. So the S uh, plus B equals M theory is the evolution of this. And I think a, a more compelling case. First, she wears a ruby, a red ruby around her neck that pulses when she uses her light magic. Two, she survived poisoning by Master Cresson, Sanus's ma- uh, maester back on Dragonstone. Three, she claims not to need any sustenance and only eats to keep the men around her from suspecting the extent of her powers. Uh, she does not get cold even slinking around the wall in a sheer dress. Five, in her POV chapter, she says she sleeps an hour at night, if that, and as she grows stronger, she hopes to eliminate the need for sleep at all. Six, her powers of memory seem to fade when attempting to recall her past. All she can remember is a voice calling out, Melanie, and then Lot 7, followed by her weeping and wailing. And even this, she can only remember when she arrives at the wall, as her powers mysteriously begin to increase. And seven, she is older than she appears. In her POV chapter in Dance, she claims to have practiced her year art for years beyond count. Now, this essentially is the evidence behind Melisandre is undead slash far older than she appears theory. The memory problems are consistent with someone raised by the fire of her lord. Uh, Beric Dondarrion claims not to need to eat either, and Arya says that while she has seen him with his eyes closed, she gets the distinct impression that he was not really asleep. And people have suggested that she is perhaps quite hideous in appearance, similar to Beric and Lady Stoneheart but that her ruby she wears around her throat functions similar to the bracelet she gave to Mance Raider and the Lord of Bones when she pulled off her glamour-based burn-the-one-dude switcheroo, switcheroo, which she they appear to have gone away from in the television series. If she is undead, she would obviously have to, uh, would be proof against poison and the cold. But again, there's that, that's definitely evidence that she is not what she appears to be. But I actually think this S uh, plus B equals M theory is a lot more interesting. And before we go further, I want to draw attention your attention to a prophecy that Melisandre recites in A Storm of Swords. I have seen it in the flames, read of it in ancient prophecy. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. Now, let's consider Master Cresson's description of Melisandre, again from a, uh, a Storm of Swords. As ever she wore red, head to heel, a long loose gown of flowing silk as bright as fire, with dagged sleeves and deep slashes in the bodice that showed glimpses of a darker, blood-red fabric beneath. Around her throat was a red gold choker tighter than any maester's chain, ornamented with a single great ruby. Her hair was not the orange or strawberry colour of common red-haired men, but a deep burnished copper that shone in the light of the torches. Even her eyes were red, but her skin was smooth and white, 
unblemished, pale as cream. Slender she was, graceful, taller than most knights, with full breasts and narrow waist and a heart-shaped face. Men's eyes that once found her did not quickly look away. Now, let's draw everything together. And for this, this is kind of a first for the podcast. I'm actually not using material from A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm, I'm pulling information from the graphic novel series Hedge Knight, the Dunkin' Egg series, um, and also some information even a little further out into Apocrypha Land called So Spake Martin. And this is a resource uh, on the Citadel section of Westeros.org. And it's a collection of speeches, email correspondence, and other verified writings that Martin has all approved and said, yes, I did write this, uh, that they've collected about everything he said off or on the record, I guess, about the Song of Ice and Fire. And again, a lot of people might consider these apocryphal, and indeed, there is evidence that Martin has changed his mind or altered subtle details that he's revealed in these things, because this archive goes back to the 90s. It's like 25 years of him writing about this series. Um, well, with all those caveats, please consider the following. In a letter that he sent to Roman Popsuyev, who is uh, started the Russian website, the the largest Russian website on A Song of Ice and Fire, and you might know him as Amok. And if you've been on a wiki of Ice and Fire or any of the other sites where they use illustrations of characters, you have seen his artwork. He is one of the leaders in producing art, and he made it his mission to sit and do a portrait of every single significant and even insignificant character from a Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh, this was his description for Lady Shira. It says, Lady Shira was the natural daughter of King Aegon IV, who we know as the unworthy, by the ninth and last of his mistresses, Lady Sereni of Lys, the last daughter of an ancient but impoverished line of Valerian nobility. Sweet Sereni, he, uh, Aegon called her, but about his court, she was considered cold and haughty, and some said she was much older than the king and preserved her beauty by the practice of dark arts. Considered by many the most lovely of Aegon's mistresses, sweet Sereni died in childbed, bringing forth the last of the king's great bastards, the daughter he named Shira, or Star of the Sea. Shira was born with one dark blue eye and one bright green one, but the singer said that this flaw only accentuated her loveliness. She was the greatest beauty of her age, a slender and elegant woman, slim of waist and full of breast. She had the silver-haired gold of the Targaryens, thick and curling, and wore it very long. She had a heart-shaped face, full lips, and her mismatched eyes were strangely large and full of mischief. She spoke a dozen languages and surrounded herself with ancient scrolls. Like her mother, she is reputed to practice the dark arts. Though she never wed, she had many offers and several lovers throughout the years. Her most ardent admirer was her half-brother, the Blood Raven, who proposed marriage to her half a hundred times. Shiera gave him her bed, but never her hand. It amused her more to make him jealous. Now, let's consider Maester Creston's description again of Melisandre. Slender she was, graceful, taller than most knights, with full breasts and a narrow waist and a heart-shaped face. She's also described in this book as having her eyes were two red stars shining in the dark. And from a storm of swords, it mentions Melisandre's ruby glowed like a red star at her throat. Now, who else do we know has red eyes? And again, a lot of this description matches uh, Shiera, but there's a few things like her height and some other details, uh, not the mismatched eyes, but the red eyes that don't. 
let's consider this. Now, this is a uh, email sent to Les Dable of the Dable Brothers Productions as part of a preparation for adapting an excerpt from the Sworn Sword uh, into the second edition of the Hedge Knight graphic novel. So this is essentially him giving, um, again, art direction and a description, a physical description of these characters to someone. Um, they're not official, but again, this is how George sees these characters. He's speaking of the Blood Raven, says he's the most distinctive of the three, an albino with a red wine stain birthmark on his neck and cheeks that look vaguely like a raven in flight. Uh, he's tall and wiry, but scrawny compared to his magnificent half-brothers, although a good swordsman, his main weapon is a bow. Uh, he is also by repute a sorcerer. He has sharp features and is vaguely sinister. He continues uh, that he is an albino with milk-white skin and white hair worn long. His eye is red, the one he still has, the right one. At the Battle of the Red Grass Field, his left eye was put out by bitter steel when they dueled. He seldom wears an eye patch, but prefers to display a scarred and empty socket to the world. His colors are scarlet and smoke, smoke being a sort of dark gray streaked and mottled with black. Because his skin is very sensitive to the rays of the sun, he frequently goes about cloaked and hooded. He is a shade under six feet tall and very thin, gaunt with a grim, unforeboding aspect and a sinister, sinister reputation as a sorcerer and spymaster. So, if you took the physical description of the Blood Raven and Shiera, Sea Star, and put them in a blender to frappe, you would, broadly speaking, speaking, wind up with someone that physically looks like Melisandre, right? She's got the milky white skin, the red eyes, the heart-shaped face, the curvy seductress fig- uh, um, uh, figure. She's tall, etc., etc. Now, the first time the Blood Raven is mentioned in, in the Duncan Egg series, Dunk calls him the King Sorcerer. In A Storm of Swords, uh, Grin introduced her as Melisandre of Ashai, the King Sorceress. It's another link that links these two characters together. Also, let's read her prophecy. And this is the reason, um, or the, the, not a prophecy, I'm sorry, a vision that she saw in Dance with Dragons. This is in her first POV chapter. Her face took shape within the hearth. Stannis, she thought, just for a moment. But no, these were not his features. A wooden face, corpse white. Was this the enemy? A thousand red eyes floated in the rising flames. He sees me. Beside him, a boy with a wolf's face threw back his head and howled. The red priestess shuddered. Blood trickled down her thigh, black and smoking. The fire was inside her, an agony, an ecstasy, filling her, searing her, transforming her. Now, you're probably asking this point, Aaron, why is this all significant? Okay, let's say that she is the um, bastard daughter of Brendan, the Blood Raven, Rivers, and Sierra Seastar. Well, there's a prophecy that uh, she mentions. I have seen it in the flames. Read of it in ancient prophecy. When the red star bleeds and the darkness gathers, Azor Ahai shall be born again amidst smoke and salt to wake dragons out of stone. Effectively, Melisandre could be fulfilling her own prophecy. Later on in the book, John is murdered by his fellow black brothers. Uh, John's wounds smoke, and when uh, while Bowen or Bowen Marsh cries, providing the prophesied salt. 
So she could literally be the red star, sea star. Uh, we see that her eyes shine like stars. Her gemstone shines like stars. She could be the daughter of the sea star. She could, she's literally bleeding when she thinks about her potential father, Blood Raven, who is up again, uh, tied to the weirwood tree with Bran. But if Melisandre is indeed using some form of light magic to prolong her life and glamour herself a youthful appearance, she could be in for quite a shock when she attempts to give Jon the breath of life to return him to the living, as many speculate as how Jon Snow is going to continue on in the story. After all, when Beric Dondarrion tried that with Catelyn Stark, it cost him his life. We are told time after time in the series that only death can pay for life. And that is your tinfoil for the week. Hope you've enjoyed it. If you've got any spoilery takes, if you've got any tinfoil theories, send them in to Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. Again, you can see our entire catalog at baldmove.com. Uh, you can also follow us along uh, for our release schedule on Twitter at baldmove and on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash baldmove. And finally, uh, I encourage you to join us in the forums at forums.baldmove.com. It's a great way to share your own spoiler speculation directly with the fans. I'm in there every day commenting and uh, organically building some of this stuff. It's a good time. So we will see you Sunday night for the non-spoiler instant recap for the this Sunday's episode. We'll see you Tuesday for the full cast and back here on Friday for the spoiler edition. See you later.